Now, how do I know that? Because Jesus is brilliant and he's going to give us an example. All right. When the good being considered results in the saving of life, then and only then, according to Jesus, is it permitted. When harm is done on the Sabbath that results in the loss of life or killing, this is not permitted in the Torah. Guys, this is what this dispute is about. This is halakha. Say halakha. This is expert lawyer courtroom precedent kind of stuff. And it is awesome. This is what Jesus is doing. He's showing his skills as a lawyer. I know the law better than you. I know how it should be interpreted. And I think you're wrong. And they say, oh yeah? And it's this standoff. It's this, huh, let's go. Toe to toe, hand to hand combat. Let's figure out who's right and who's wrong. And you got MIT, Cambridge, Yale, and all seven of them standing there like this in their suit and tie and briefcase, Armani suit, $500 leather shoes. And Jesus is like, hi, fellas, what's going on? I'm from, I'm from Galilee. Hey, let's talk about the law. I mean, it is. He's just this, he's a hick. He's a redneck going against the dream team. And they're like, destroy this guy. And says, Jesus, says, well, let me ask you a question. Which one of you, if you had a sheep and it fell into a pit, wouldn't lay hands on it and lift it out? You know what their brilliant answer was? Nothing. Exactly. Nothing. Which is what? It means, dang, he got me on that one. I'll go out and figure something else out. Right? It's exactly what it means. Okay, check it out. So, hang on. Simmer down there, big tuna. All right. So we have to conclude that not only is doing the kind of good that leads to life allowed on the Sabbath, but here's where we get to appreciate Jesus' criteria what he uses for interpreting the Torah. And we also get to appreciate the Pharisees. Jesus is alleging, what does that mean? He's, he's making a declaration, right? He's, he's asserting, he's alleging. It hasn't been proven yet. He's alleging that healing this man is considered the kind of good that results in saving life. And therefore, it is permitted by the Torah. The Pharisees do not interpret the situation the same way. They most certainly feel that healing the man with the withered hand is a good thing, but this does not lead to life. I'm sorry, Mr. Jesus. You can just wait till tomorrow to heal the man with the withered hand because this withered hand that's not going to lead to saving life. And Jesus says, I beg to differ. Now, what does Jesus need? He needs some evidence. He needs some proof. This is so cool. Jesus is going to have to provide evidence for his interpretation that it is right. And he's going to do this in two ways. Don't miss what he does. He is providing two different types of witnesses. Not just two different witnesses, two different types of witnesses to refute the charge leveled against him. Guys, this comes directly out of Deuteronomy 19.15. Here's what it says. 
A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Jesus will attempt to provide two witnesses to establish the charge that the Pharisees' restrictive interpretation of the Torah is wrong. You are wrong. And they say, oh yeah, prove it. He's going to do this by providing, first of all, an everyday example of working on the Sabbath that results in saving life. If they agree, the, the example is valid. End of story. Jesus is right. And Matthew records the example Jesus pr- proposed. What is it again, Kyle? Matthew 12, 11? Yeah, what does he say? And their brilliant answer? Nothing. Crickets chirping in the background. Like silence. You guys, all of you, if you had a sheep and it fell into a pit on the Sabbath, are you telling me you wouldn't lift it out? And they're like, maybe. Jesus says, what would that action result in? Saving its life. Oh, we're coming on to something really cool. In other words, which of you Pharisees is willing to admit that saving the sheep's life is not permitted by the Torah? And they have no answer. Everyone believes, including the Pharisees, that saving the sheep's life is permitted because it saves life. Not just human life, but animal life as well. Now, Jesus' brilliance is manifested in this example because Did you catch it? Did you see the picture? He's talking about a whole lot more than a farm animal. What is God's favorite picture of his entire nation? Isn't that cool? It's a sheep. He calls him the, the house of Israel, the flock of the house of Israel. Who's the big shepherd? Who's the great shepherd? God is. And who does the great shepherd shepherd? The sheep of his pasture. The sheep that eat out of his hand. Who are are the sheep? Israel is the sheep of God. Yes, every single person is a sheep. This is all throughout the Old Testament, right? And Jesus, brilliant picture. So then, by using the picture of a sheep, what has Jesus just compared his sheep to without actually saying it? Who has he compared the sheep in his little example to without saying it? Any Israelite, right? Just any person in Israel. How do we know? Because Matthew goes on to record that Jesus said, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? What's their brilliant answer? Birds chirping in the background. Like, again, nothing. In other words, Jesus is right, and they know it. Now, let's unpack that for a second. If the owner of a sheep can set aside the Sabbath command in order to save its life and not be guilty, how much more can the owner of this sheep, this man, 
in God's flock, set aside the Sabbath command and not be held guilty. Uh, who's the owner, by the way, of that man? God is. Are you willing to accuse God of breaking the Sabbath? And everybody's like, well, no, God, no, God wouldn't break the Sabbath. Exactly. Jesus' point is done, and he doesn't even have to say it. Oh, my goodness. Now, God is the shepherd of this little sheep over here with the withered hand. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He's so convinced that his interpretation of work that results in good, that results in life, is right, and it's permitted on the Sabbath, that he believes that God is 100% in agreement with him. And so he's going to provide his second witness that will establish the charge that the Pharisees are wrong. They're wrong. Jesus is convinced that God will do a miracle through him. Miracles, the ace of spades, highest trump, game over, no more quarters, drop the mic, boom. If he does a miracle, it's like, my first wit witness was plenty good, but I know the Torah and I know I need two. So let me give you another witness too. This one's going to be a miracle. Boom. See ya. But before that, guys, I'm intrigued by Luke's mention of the man with the withered hand. He tells us that it was the man's right hand. Why? Why do I need to know that? Do I need to know that? Is that important? One word. I told you guys at the beginning. One word took me to a place that broke me completely. And I'm so glad. So cool. If Luke says it was the man's right hand, then Luke means for us to understand this is absolutely vital to the meaning of the story. And it's up to us to ask the question, why do I need to know that? Why do I need to know that it's his right hand? What does it mean that it's his right hand was withered? Is there something special about his right hand in the story? Guess what the answer is going to be? Yes. I think it's going to be, yes, you need to know that. Because the Torah, the Bible does not waste words. Every word is where God wanted it to be. So, neither the Matthew account nor the Mark account gives us this detail. It's only Luke. I would like to give you some details about why Luke may have mentioned in his account. The rest of this is notes that you can take if you want or you can sit back and listen. I'd like to give you some details about why Luke may have mentioned in his account that it was the man's right hand. Because when I read that, I went, Matthew, Mark, don't say it's his right hand. Only Luke. That's weird. I start to look on the internet. And after much searching, I found a book by a man named Dr. Ron Charles, and it's an excerpt from the book called The Sabbath of Weeks Proclamation. Just listen. Translated from the binder is the history of the man with the withered hand, or what is referred to as the Zena Raposa Proclamation. It was from Eleazar, the high priest. This proclamation came after the issue of a previous proclamation of Sabbath of Weeks, hence our correlation with today's verse. The proclamation allowed 217 master stonemasons who had unsurpassed professionalism and talent. It allowed them to work on the Sabbath because Herod the Great 
was dying and ordered the enhancement and enlargement of the Jewish temple of worship. And it was to be finished before his death. Herod ordered around-the-clock work to be done, even on the Sabbath. You can't do that. Oh, yes, you can. If you're the king, you can do it. However, how do you get 217 stonemasons to actually break the Sabbath, working every Sabbath, without being held guilty and punished by God? Eh, you got to pull a few strings. This is what is explained. A man by the name of Yeshu Bensi was handpicked by Herod to oversee and supervise the temple work to completion. Herod actually died before the completion of the work. Yeshu Bensi then convinced the high priest, here's how you do it, when everything was completed except for Herod's tower, which is called the Tower of Antonia. If this is the Temple Mount, there's this tower here that was occupied by a Roman garrison. Now you say, wait a minute, I thought the temple was holy, it was only Jewish. It is, but it's over here. Why do you think the Romans occupied it, this part of the temple? Yeah, they, no, they needed soldiers to be able to rush into the temple at any time there was a disturbance and keep the peace. So this was their military headquarters. The rest of the temple is the Jewish temple. This part was not finished before Herod died. Okay. To convince the new high priest to keep working the stonemasons an additional 126 Sabbaths. How many Sabbaths in a month? Four. So some, you know, how many Sabbaths in a month? Four. How many months is 126 Sabbaths? Maybe uh, 30, 32, 33 months. Okay. He convinced the high priest to allow the stonemasons, the 217 stonemasons, to work an additional 126 Sabbaths that it would take to complete their work on the tower. When their work was complete, the Sabbath of weeks proclamation expired. What the high priest had to sign and do all the stuff to make sure God wouldn't, you know, be upset. After the Sabbath, Sabbath of weeks proclamation expired, and on the following Sabbath, Yeshu ben Si invited all 217 stonemasons and their families to the temple complex for a celebration in their honor. When all 217 families arrived, Yeshu ben Si praised them and honored them for the beautiful work on the temple and the tower as well. In the middle of all the praise, Yeshu stood up and announced that for working on the Sabbath, that all 217 stonemasons would not be punished. Even though working on the Sabbath is forbidden according to the law, but working on the Sabbath was permitted so that the temple could be completed. However, the real reason for the gathering was because they worked on the Tower of Antonia for the Romans. And for that, they would be punished. With that, Yeshu ben Si had all of the right hands of the 217 master stonemasons smashed between two millstones. Hundreds of pounds each, perfectly flat rocks. I don't know if you know what that would do, but not only would it 
like a bag full of whipped cream, it would splatter out everywhere because your, your bones would turn to powder. And basically, and all the blood and every, every single ligament has to go somewhere under two perfectly flat rocks. So everything would explode out sideways. When you pull it up, you would have nothing left but limp. There's no bones. There's no ligament. There's no any kind of anything left. It's just the exploded skin. So you, can you imagine how that dried up and withered and became this big? Okay. Instantly destroying the stonemason's livelihood. That's how they worked. That's how they fed themselves. Yeshu then ordered that the wives of the stonemasons would have one eye gouged out and the fingers, all of them, on their right hands cut off for their wives. The wives were condemned to work in the garbage dump of Gehenna for the rest of their lives. As for the children, it was ordered that both of their eyes be gouged out and they had to beg in the streets for the rest of their lives. Never again were the stonemasons permitted to see their wives or their children. That's still not all of the cruelty. From that Sabbath day forward, they would have to spend every Sabbath all day in a local synagogue wearing sackcloth on their right arm and right crushed hand as an example to all who dare break the law of the Sabbath. They had to bow their heads at all times. They were not allowed to raise their heads in public or look at anyone for as long as they lived. They had to beg in the streets for their food. The excuse that Yeshu ben Si used to justify such cruelty was that it would have been far better for the stonemasons to have refused to work for the Romans and faced death by them than to have broken the Sabbath in order to work for them. With these historical details added to our accounts in the Synoptic Gospels, we can see a whole new picture of the man with the withered or paralyzed hand. If he was one of the 217 stonemasons, then what Jesus does is more beautiful than anything else he's done so far. Guys, imagine it's the Sabbath. You and your whole family get ready, head down the street to the synagogue, walk in, you greet all your friends, all your neighbors, find your seat, you sit down, and there's that strange man sitting in the back again. He's been there every Sabbath since before you were even born. Head hung in shame, sackcloth on his arm, your parents catch you staring and say, around right now, like they did in church. Then Yeshua walks in to your synagogue. And he's greeted by all. Everybody stand. Oh, welcome, Rabbi. We're so glad to have you. Hoping to get like a glimpse at him doing something awesome. Everyone except the man in the back. He just stays seated, head bowed in shame. And the famous and controversial rabbi reads from the Torah. And then he sits on the bimah, the stone bench, and begins teaching his thoughts on the passage that he just read. Maybe the passage was Isaiah 56, 1 and 2. And as he read, can you see Jesus doing this? I can see Jesus doing this. 
Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, Jesus says. Not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing evil. Maybe just then Jesus fixes his gaze on the man in the back of the synagogue, watching him slink down even farther in his seat as the stinging words of Isaiah 56 remind him of how cursed he is for what he's done. And Jesus stands up and he says to the man, Sir, come here. He can't look because he has to bow his head. Finally, some guy goes, Hey, dummy, he's talking to you. And the guy looks up and Jesus says, Sir, come here. Please, come here. The former stonemason whose head is hung in shame, his dignity, value as a human being, smashed by those who exalted the demands of the Torah over the smile of God, who is love and who is moved with compassion when he sees us, Jesus has him stand up and speaks to him. The silence of being driven away, embraced by the voice of the one whose words dispel the shame. Stretch out your hand, Jesus says. The man feels something he hasn't felt in a long time. He undoes the sackcloth, untying it from his arm, and as he removes the covering, sackcloth falls to the floor. So does this guy's shame. So does his indignity. Because for the first time in 37 years, he lifts his head and he meets the eyes of God in Jesus Christ, who's just smiling. He looks around in disbelief and a smile curls around his lips. I mean, he's free. He's free from the pit. He's the sheep that fell in the pit that destroyed his life. And there was no doubt that God himself, the source of the miracle of the healing, had decided that this man, this sheep, was innocent of his crimes. And he'd been given a full and divine pardon. What was the role of the Pharisees? Were they not shepherds? Were they not to have custody of the sheep of the house of Israel? When one of their sheep, like the man with the withered hand, fell into a pit. Were they not supposed to rescue him? Laying hold of him and lift him out? Was Jesus indirectly indicting the Pharisees of being shepherds who cared more about their harsh interpretations than for their sheep? That is the people of Israel when he asked, which one of you who has a sheep and it falls into a pit wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? Some of you are young men and young women with a withered hand, crushed hand. Maybe you feel like you've fallen into a pit and there's no way out. But your heavenly shepherd bids you take off the sackcloth. Stand right here next to me. In the presence of those who look away because they can't see you. Come here. The Lord of the Sabbath has come to you. That area of your life that's been withered, 
that area of your soul that has dried up, that place within your emotions that's just dead, I think Jesus says, stretch it forth and be free. I love him. I love Jesus so much. Imagine what he did for that man. First thing he does is go find his wife and his kids. He said, God set me free. I wasn't guilty. That's who Jesus is. He's still the same person. So, let's pray. And just bless Jesus for who he is. Father God in heaven, we are so in awe of the love that you have to have for us to give us the most brilliant human being to have ever lived. Thank you for our lawyer. Thank you for our shepherd. Thank you for our teacher. Help us to be more like him today than we were yesterday and less than tomorrow. In the name of our Messiah, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be a healer of scars, not a maker of scars. And may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi today. Amen.